Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Uh, today's guest is Alan Yang, uh, the co-creator of Master of None, one of my close friends, and he's working on several projects for Amazon, and he has a, a new movie coming out um, that is somewhat autobiographical. Um, there's a lot to Alan's career, and I think there's a lot to Alan's career that can be applicable to anyone that aspires to do anything creative. So uh, thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, here is Alan Yang. I am with my good friend, Alan Yang, who is joining us today for the pod. And we are still hoping that we're going to work on our own pod together somehow, some way. We were initially the whole pod was uh, was a idea that we would do something together. It's still going to happen, but uh, the reason why it couldn't happen is you see, Alan Yang's an incredibly busy guy. He's got a lot going on, and uh, I want to find out about all that's happened and what he's working on. And we're just going to shoot the shit like we normally do. But uh, thanks for joining us, Alan. Hey, what's up? Thank you very much, Dave. Dave, you're already better at this. That intro was very strong. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Dave and I did a couple of these just for fun <laughs> in, the, in the comfort of our own private homes and stuff like that. And, and uh, Dave, just so confident. Oh, shit. Like you've been doing this for oh, years. Oh, shit. <laughs> so I want to talk about how you got into film. And I know it myself, and I've always found it to be incredibly interesting because you were born and raised in Riverside. And you were predestined to be a doctor. Yeah, I mean, well, predestined is a strong word, but like about as much as any Asian kid is, which is a lot. You know, not, <laughs> like, not they, me, not they, me. You're, well, your kid, your parents are pushing for it, right? Your your parents are pushing for you to like to do I, I something like you're like serious. A, your family's smart. My dad's a hustler. Like your dad's a doctor. It's a very different kind of thing. <laughs> My family is pretty smart. Thank uh, yeah. you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I grew up in, in Riverside. Like Dave said, it's kind of a suburb, like an hour and a half from LA. Um, a very sort of norm core place. You know, it's an interesting place though. It, when I grew up there, um, it's kind of more of a blue collar town. Um, it's very, very not Hollywood. Like, you know, we didn't know anyone who was working in the industry. It's too far from LA to, to really be part of that. Um, What's the makeup of yeah, the town? Yeah, so, so the town is interesting. When I was there, you know, my high school was a big, uh, big public high school, probably, you know, 3,000 people or something like that. And the racial breakdown was interesting because it was probably, you know, 40, 50% Latino, 10, 15% black, and the rest were white people and like 1% Asian, you know, it was like, a, it was, it, and, and uh, you know, Riverside would vote Republican. And it was this place in Southern California that was this little pocket of, I think other people in Southern California make fun of it a lot. They call it like the IE and it's like place where honestly rednecks live. <laughs> that was kind of like, but they had a lot of pride in it, right? There are kids in my school who wore cowboy hats and had pickup trucks with like Confederate flags on them. And, and that was just like, that was just, I accepted that as normal. You know, there's so few Asian kids there, you know, it was uh, you know, I, I think I've told Dave this story before, but there was this one other Asian girl and she started passing me notes in class and stuff. And I think she wanted to hang out or something. And finally, one day she passed me a note, you know, uh, during lunch, there's all, it was de facto segregated. You know, it was like, hey, you know, the Mexican kids sit at these picnic tables and the black kids sit over here and the white kids sit over here. And so she passed me a note that said, hey, Alan, how come at lunch you never sit at the Asian tree? And there was one tree where like five sad Asian kids sat together. So it was like, you know, so basically, you know, I feel like high school, you know, I learned to get along with a lot of different kinds of people. And, you know, I had no inkling. I had no inkling that this 
what I ended up doing was a job. You know, I loved movies. I loved TV shows. I watched a lot of Seinfeld and The Simpsons and SNL. And my mom always thought it was a waste of time. And so, uh, you know, I was also, I did good in school, like you were saying. You know, I did, I, I, I got good grades and stuff. And ultimately, you know, this, the high school wasn't like super rigorous. So I was pretty advanced in classes. So after junior year, I... Let's uh, just for the record, Alan's fucking smart. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I applied, you know, I applied to colleges early um, as a junior and, and, and uh, you know, just wrote an additional essay that was like, yeah, I, I, here's my grades and scores. I don't have a high school diploma. Um, and then I got into school. So I ended up you skipped. skipping. I skipped my senior year of high school. And, 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 and you, he went, he's one of those guys that went to school in Boston, which is yeah, code word yeah. for Harvard. No, I went to Harvard. Yeah, I went to Harvard. <laughs> and it was like real culture shock, man. Like, if you can imagine, you know. You weren't born for the East Coast. Yeah, so I got there and it was like, I felt like a lot of the kids there, you know, had gone to private schools and they were really, they went to good schools and, and you know, came from prominent families or whatever. So yeah, I was a little like, man, I'm this, I'm this kid from this podunk SoCal town and and that that was made fun of in California and and now I'm at this really really difficult prestigious school. So Wait, for, so your freshman year at Harvard, what are you 16? Yeah, so I was I think I just turned 17 and and I majored in biology. So I I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do and and I loved writing, I love humanities, but I also figured very pragmatically as an Asian person like, well, if I major in you know math or science, like I can still do humanities, but if the reverse is true, you know, I, I couldn't flip back and forth. So I did biology and I just worked my ass off that freshman year like I just was scared I was really scared that I would flunk out or something so I just worked really hard was and it easier or hard like was class harder now it was hard it was hard as hell man people are good there but <laughs> but yeah no so but I did all right and then I realized I just wasn't that happy right I just I just didn't know what I wanted to do and like I said you know like you mentioned I was young um, and two things kind of really changed that. Uh, I started playing in a punk rock band, which was really, really fun. Um, and we would tour around on the weekends. And, and you know, I'd always loved music, too. I taught myself how and to play. And if you and watch stuff. some Parks and Recs, uh, what was the name of the band in Parks uh, and Recreation? There's Rec a band Tale? called Mouse Rat Mouse in Rat. Parks and Recreation. Uh, it's a band that is fronted by Chris Pratt, uh, current uh, action movie star. Um, so he's the singer in this band. He plays a character named Andy Dwyer, and I'm the bassist in the band, which the creator of the show, Mike Sure, put me in just as a joke because he knew I was in a band before. So he's like, yeah, you should be in Mouse Rat. I was like, yeah, that's a hilarious joke. <laughs> and it was one episode, and then it was like, Mouse Rat's going to come back for 15 more episodes, <laughs> so you're going to be in the background. And you're gonna... It was actually really fun at the end of every uh, Parks and Rec season we would actually learn all the songs you know we, we played them in the show and then we at the rap party we would uh, me and Chris and, and Burley and and, and uh, all the guys in the band would uh, would play a concert so that was really fun um, so yeah so I started playing in a band um, and then I also uh, tried to start writing for this uh, comedy magazine called the Harvard Lampoon uh, in college if and people don't know anything about the Harvard Lampoon it's a has a giant legacy. Why is it so important? Yeah, I mean, I think the Lampoon has. I have kind of uh, mixed feelings on the Lampoon's reputation because it's really, really. It, man, it was a really great time, and I met all of these amazing people who became my friends and are still some of my best friends today. It's a great comedy breeding ground in some ways because you're just thinking seriously about comedy writing, and I just think that's pretty unusual. What in do the you mean world. by seriously in comedy writing? You just, you just surrounded by it and if you want you're surrounded by it 24 7 so there's a building the, the lampoon has a building and you're not really allowed in it unless you're on staff and it's like kind of hard to make it you got to write a bunch of comedy pieces and stuff um but once you make it 
you know, all you want to do is hang and out. And you're just in the submitting building. from your dorm to Lampoon. Yeah, it's a really obnoxious process where you kind of go in and you write all these dumb pieces and you, you go there and, and there's a thing called office hours where you go in and, and, and give your pieces to people on staff and they criticize them. And so you do that for a while. And I didn't make it the first time. Like, you know, you try, you know, a lot of people try multiple times. So finally I got pretty fed up. I was like, I'm funnier than these guys. Like, fuck these guys. And then finally I was like, I'll try one more time. And so I did the minimum. I did the absolute minimum. I didn't go to office hours or anything. I just submitted my pieces in that time. Of course, I made it. So, um, but once you get on, you know, all you want to do is is be funny and be as funny as the people who are on it, and then be funnier, and then you're one of the people who are there. And and, and how many people are in the lampoon? It's pretty sparse. So, so I think at any given time it's like thirty people, and I think my year there were five or six writers. So it's it's a pretty small group, and and there's a fairly rigorous process of getting on. You know, it's not we. You know, I feel like the people in the lampoon try to make it as fair as possible. Um, but you know, it's it's pretty difficult to get on. What as are far some as famous numbers. alumni? Um, Conan O'Brien um, is is one of the big ones. John Updike, uh, if you go back farther, um, George Plimpton, and then more recently, comedy wise, it, it is really crazy. So so basically, as I was saying, it's it's it's. Uh, it's, it seems like everyone in comedy yeah, it's from a, now. It's a breeding ground. I looked around, and so this is, you know, you know, when Master of None was nominated uh, for, for, for the Emmy, uh, you know, last year, I looked around, and it's like a lot of these showrunners for comedy shows came from the Lampoon, you know? So Dave Mandel, who runs Veep, came from the Lampoon, and and uh, Alec Berg, who who runs Silicon Valley, was uh, was on the Lampoon, and, and you know, uh, all these different guys, and you know Mike Schur, who runs Parks and Rec, was on the Lampoon, and it does seem like this insidious thing. Where it's like, oh, these assholes are all hiring each other, and yeah, I think there's an element of that, but there's an el- another element of a lot of these people are pretty good. I mean, it's hard to argue with some of the there's results. A, there's a correlation. Yeah, basically, that if you like, make it the like Lampoon, then there's a good chance that you're going to be successful. There's a road. chance, and there's good writers and there's bad writers from the Lampoon. But yeah, a lot of the shows I was watching growing up, like The Simpsons and Seinfeld were very heavily Lampoon writers. And so it's an interesting place. And, and Do you have to be a comedy writer to work at the Lampoon? Are well, there been successful people that are like, fuck the Lampoon? I'm yes, absolutely. So a few people. So like uh, uh, Dan Gore, who uh, created Brooklyn Nine-Nine with Mike, you know, he was he was on Lampoon. And I think Megan Amram, who's a great comedy writer, she, so it, 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 it it's not a guarantee of anything. But for me, it was a really fun place. And it really was the place that, inspired me to the biggest thing was it inspired me to believe that I could even do this you could hang yeah so I just basically after I graduated I moved out to LA and just sat in a well you know, before you go to LA yeah yeah what happened like you were like okay I'm no longer gonna major in biology yeah so you're now probably spending a lot of your time writing comedy what happens to your GPA uh, GPA went way down <laughs> It went way down. I took a lot. I started taking a lot of film classes. So I don't know what my parents were thinking, but if you look at my transcript, it's like freshman year, it's like math, physics, organic chemistry, biology. And then senior year, it's like uh, film, 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 <laughs> FM studies, film, FM studies. It's, like, it's just the weirdest. It's, it's like the weirdest transition where I'm just taking all these humanities classes. But how did you end. know you want to do comedy and comedy writing? Like uh, that's a crazy transition. Yeah, it was. And it was, it, it, here's the thing. I think it's just listening to what your gut says, man. And, and that's a weird thing, but, but in what, it, what, what it, was your gut telling in, you? In high school, this is funny, but I had a couple friends in high school and 
the, our thing was just joking around. It was just literally like joking around and like, you know, we weren't huge performative class clown types, but I think we loved just hanging out in the back of the classroom and just talking to each other and making jokes and talking about pop culture and talking about what we had seen on, you know, Mr. Show or The Simpsons or Seinfeld or SNL or whatever. That that was really sort of the most fun I had. And then the same thing basically was a recapitulation of that in college where the most fun I had the most inspired I was was hanging out with these other smart, funny people. And that was just like, oh, shit, if I can do a job where I get to hang out with these people, that would be amazing. And that's kind of what happened. Because what you learn at Harvard and the Lampoon, like what was something that you didn't, couldn't have learned elsewhere? Nothing. You learn to watch TV and make fun of it. You learn to get a drinking problem. <laughs> it's like it's basically all you do, you know, is is hang out in the, in, in the building and just kind of drink with each other and hang out and make fun of stuff. And but here's here's the thing. That to me is the closest analog. It's a little microcosm of a writer's room. Because right. what is a writer's room other than a place where you go in and hang out with other funny people and try to be funnier than they are? That's what that's what that that really felt like to me. And I wanted to add, I think there's a lot of similarities, again, to cooking in the sense that I think it was a little bit different for me when I started cooking because I did go to four years of college and I had a fun time. But what I think separated me from a lot of my peers when I started cooking like 2000 was simply the fact that I knew how to communicate with people. Yeah. Just having a beer and talking to people and introducing myself and just the shit that you learn in college that isn't academic. I think so much of college, as you sort of, we talk about, was about learning to, like, be you. Yes, exactly. It's it's finding who you are and finding a community because having a community is really important. That gives you, that emboldens you. And some people, sure, they might be lone wolves who just know what they want and are so driven and know exactly what they want. But for me, certainly, it was like, wow, this is a group of people I really love, and what am I doing with them? I'm working on comedy stuff, and I'm writing, and I'm, uh, and and it feels this is this is so fun. I'll do anything to to get this to continue. And and I think you're right. Communicating is a big part of it because you know I just didn't know before. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Every business needs to hire great people, especially in my world of the restaurant industry. It's incredibly difficult to find good people. And one of the best that we've used over the years is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. They learn what you're looking for, identify the right people with the right experience, and invite them to apply for your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidate is out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs, including my own. Right now, many listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And going back, you're like, there's just so many things to like unravel here. Part of that is, you know, Conan O'Brien gave a great acceptance uh, commencement speech when he's like, well, congratulations, you graduated from Harvard. Now you guys are sort of fucked because now everyone's going to expect you to do something amazing. Yeah, and they're going to hate you too. Right. And then not only <laughs> you get should, to Harvard, then you get into the Lampoon. 
And what's it like to be like, okay, you're about to graduate. What, what's the pressure like for someone that is in the lampoon then? Because like, uh, does everyone know they're going to try to be huge? Not everyone tries. So a lot of people do just because, again, it's just such a fun option. Like, it's just really, again, if you can make it as a, as a writer, I think I really highly recommend it because it's, it's you know, I, I feel so lucky that I get to do what I do. Um, but what, we, what ended up happening with me was I moved out to L.A. Fortunately, you know, my family is an hour and a half from L.A., so I made a pit stop, and, and a couple of my friends came with me. So I was with uh, my friend Steve Healy and my friend Mike Yank, um, and we went out and stayed at my mom's house for, like, a, a little bit, and then we looked for apartments in L.A. And so we were driving around L.A., and we found a place, like a three-bedroom we liked, and then my friend Steve got a call. He's like, I got hired on Dave Letterman's show. I was like, what? That's insane. So so sometimes it happens fast, right? It didn't happen that fast for me. But eventually, you know, like me and Mike got an apartment on Fairfax and Sunset across from the Rite Aid. You know, it was, you know, we each paid 600 bucks a month and it was a real shithole. Um, but yeah, we just kind of set up shop and started writing scripts. And, and man, you, you really, you really don't know if you, if you know how impossible it's going to be, I think, and I think this case with a lot of industries, if you know how low the odds are that you'll make it, you would never have started. No way. I, yeah. Yeah. I moved out there and I was like, yeah, this is just one of the, I'll never forget. Like one of the funniest, one of the first meetings I ever had was, was on the tonight show with Jay Leno and, and, uh, um, I, I went in there. I had I didn't even have an agent yet. The, uh, an agent had hip pocketed me, and that's that's kind of slang for they have your stuff. You're not they don't represent you, but they'll submit you because if you do somehow get the job, then they'll take your money. So someone had hip pocketed me, and I got submitted. And I met there. And I and met, what you submit to the, the letter so, show? Well, ironically, I had submitted a Letterman packet because I didn't really watch the Tonight Show, so I wrote a Letterman packet. And so yeah, they gave me a little shit about that. But I met with the head writer, and I met with Jay Leno, and you know, I thought the meeting went well. And the, uh, and, and and Jay Jay Leno at the end of the meeting was like, yeah, you know, we're looking to hire some new blood here because you know we've had the same staff for a while. Like, how uh, how how old are you? And I was like, I'm 20. And he's like, I'm not hiring a 20 year old. <laughs> he's like, come back in five years. Like, go work on some other shows. Like, my youngest writer like 52 or whatever and so I was like wow okay so I'm not gonna get this job I called the, the, the agent and I was like well I'm not gonna get this job but I'm sure like some other stuff will come up I got this meeting and then you just, couldn't even drink yet just, yeah and just nothing I just didn't get meetings for you know years after that it was, it was a long time but but you know it, it, that's how up and down all of this shit is is, is, is you, you just don't know and by the way Thank God I didn't get that job. It would have changed things probably for the worse. You know, you know, you probably get stuck in that job. And then what you do after that? So uh, I was kind of bumming around doing freelance stuff. I wrote for an animation uh, company that where me and my roommate both worked, and and uh, uh, we wrote for an educational software program called Study Dog. <laughs> like literally, like writing the words for a dog to teach kids like how to add and and read and stuff. And then uh, my first job ever was in New York. I I wrote for a show called Last Call with Carson Daly, which was a one thirty a.m. talk show. And and <laughs> and, and and by the way, had an amazing writing staff. If you go back and look at the staff of that show, it, it was me. Uh, Dan Gore wrote for that show, who ended of creating Brooklyn, Steve Healy, who writes for Veep now, um, Dave King, who wrote for Parks and wrote for Love. And have um, their own great podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, great uh, Debates, yeah, check uh, it out. Steve Healy and, and Dave King, shout out to Great Debates, great pod. Um, and yeah, that was a great place to learn. I was, you know, I was 22 or something and, and got to live in New York and we shot on SNL stage and, and Carson's a great guy. You know, I still see Carson very, very occasionally and say what's up to him, just like a super nice guy. And it was a nice, friendly place to learn because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing and you know on most late night shows there's 25 writers or whatever on that show it was like 
two or three of us and we were doing everything. So we would write the bits and, and, you know, sometimes act in them and have to cast them and produce them ourselves. So that, yeah, that was a fun sort of first job. That probably was the best thing because you could do everything. Low pressure. Yeah. You got your 10,000 hours real yeah. quick. Guerrilla style. And you're doing a show every night. And, and so, you know, you know, is this show, you know, a Peabody award winner? Maybe not, but, but it, but, but it was fun. And, 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 uh, and yeah, I did learn a lot there. And so, um, you just sort of find yourself and, and, and that was a great first job. I, hey, I was really lucky. You know, I got to live in Manhattan and, and, and work. But you know, like you, you have an intense work ethic too. So yes. like, I think the commonality for anyone that's listening is like, Hey, like I would also like to be as successful as Alan. I was like, well, you're going to have to fucking work as hard. <laughs> yeah, you got, that, that was one of the things that, you know, that me and Aziz really love about each other is like, man, it's just, just working hard. Like, like while I was there, you, I wrote so many spec scripts. So a spec script is when you're trying to get another job, right? You write existing episodes or a new pilot of other shows and um, you use them as a sample to try to get on other shows. And, and I would say conservatively before I got hired on – uh, South Park, which I got, which I wrote for next, or Parks and Rec. I probably wrote ten spec scripts. So that I mean, that's that's a lot. They were all bad, but that's a lot of work, right? And 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 I wrote movies. I wrote all this stuff. It's all bad, but you put the work in, and you know what I mean. They're all they're literally all bad, but but it helps you because you get that bad shit out of your system. You right. know, you get it out of your system, and you so, learn your craft. Yeah, exactly. And so I was on I was on Carson for a couple of years, but I I was always writing other stuff, and that's how I got other jobs. You know, and um and and that's you know that's when I moved back to LA. I wrote for South Park very briefly well, for that, a like, year. Yeah, you, that's a hard nut to crack, right? So, did you is that like one of the holy grails getting to write for South Park? Uh, what was really cool for me is that's a show I watched as a kid. You know, so like that show that show came on probably when I was fifteen or sixteen, and 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 so I was a fan of the show, and so I wrote for season ten, and yeah, I mean I still didn't know what I was doing, and what was really cool. Uh, between that show and Parks and Rec is I saw two very different processes, but the commonality was just this almost religious adherence to story. And what I mean by that is story structure, character, and and the principles. Even in South Park. Even at South Park. And and it was not, I came from, as, as we mentioned, a sort of joke comedy background where it's like, yeah, I'm funny, whatever. The most important thing, I don't care what genre it is, is is do you care what's happening? Like, do you care about the characters? Do you care about the story? Is it paced out correctly? Is are the turns interesting? You know, um, and both Trey Parker, Matt Stone, and and Greg Daniels and Mike Schur, uh, who were the respective creators of the shows, could not be more different humans, but they both know what they're doing in terms of making interesting stories. And a lot of that is structural. What and, was and, different about the structure or how they worked at South Park? I mean, those guys are geniuses. They just do the show themselves. I mean, they, you're there and like you're hanging out there. I think there were like two or three of us. There's a, there's a, it's a very crazy hiring process. And again, I was there for barely any time. But when you get hired on that show, it's not a very sort of, clear process it, it's you uh so I, they had read a script i i wrote uh, some sort of spec script and then i met with a non-writing executive producer and garifino who was very nice 
then didn't hear anything for a while. I figured I didn't get the job. Then I got a letter on South Park Stationery at my house, and it said, meet us at Van Nuys Airport Monday morning. And Van Nuys Airport is a sort of private airport in L.A., and pack a bag for the week. So I packed like a carry-on bag and just drove to Van Nuys Airport Monday morning. And the first time I met Trey Parker and Matt Stone was on this private jet that they had chartered. <laughs> so I, so keep in mind, I had not really written for a scripted show before. I got on the plane. It was them and a couple other writers, uh, I think John Kimmel and Vernon Chapman. And, and there's three new people, myself included. And so the deal is you're going to spend a week with them at some place they're vacationing or something, and you don't have the job yet. So it's almost like this week-long job interview. So they flew us to Pebble Beach, and so we went up to Northern California, and they put us up in a nice hotel. And in the mornings, you would write, sort of, you pitch stuff for the upcoming season of South Park. And so, yeah, we'd go in this conference room and and, and talk about the show. And then in the afternoons, uh, you would go on activities. So you'd go, like, on a bike ride with them or, like, go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium or, like, hit golf balls with them. And then at night, they'd take you out to a nice dinner in Carmel or whatever. And, and yeah, it was really fun. I mean, it so was— So are, are they, like, saying, like, do we want to work with this person? Yeah, I think it's a bit of that, which is actually pretty smart, smart because you are spending so much time with these people. You're going to spend more time with them than you will with your family. So when you're in a writing room and you're coming up with an episode, like, how much time is going into a weekly 30-minute cartoon? Well, that show was very specific. Right. So, so that, by the way, the end of that week is like, you know, the other new people were like, I, we're freaking out. Like, I don't know. Am I talking too much? I was like, I don't know. Like I, I'm new, I, just like you guys. And at the end of the week, um, they kind of flew us back to LA and, and like, Hey, great job. All right, great. And then I didn't hear anything again for weeks and I figured I didn't get it. And then they're like, Hey, come in tomorrow morning. They just called me like on a Wednesday, like, Hey, come in tomorrow morning. It's like, come work. And I went in there and I just never saw the other two people again. <laughs> so they just had that weird week and then just like, and like never worked on the show. Um, for that show again, that show lives in, 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 Trey Parker's brain, I think. He writes all the pages and stuff. Look, so. so so then you get to uh, Parks. Like, how did yes. that happen? Yeah, so uh, it's, that's actually a very weird story as well. It just goes to show, like, when you write stuff that you care about, you know, you, you'll get hired on something. So very weird story. Um, I'm a big sports fan, you know, I, I, very into basketball. And at the time, I was into baseball. So I had started watch, watching the Red Sox in college. And um, there was a group of people in New York when I was working on, on the late night show there that watched the Red Sox at, uh, you know, at New York bars or people's apartments. Pre-2004. No. Yes, this was pre-2000, just, just pre-2004. I got into the Red Sox very, <laughs> at a very opportune time. It was very strange. Um, again, things just seemed to work out for me. But, but yeah, so we were watching these games and we had this email list and it was mainly to organize, you know, where, uh, where to watch the games or whatever. But it also morphed into this thing where whenever you'd be watching a game and you saw the commentator, you know, say something stupid or you read something that was stupid, you would email it to the list and just make fun of it. And so some of us started doing this more than others. And finally, one of the guys on the list was like, hey, guys, I can't be reading 50 emails about, like, Joe Morgan and Tim McCarver every day. Like, just please, like, just go start a blog blogger account or something. And so that's what we ended up doing. So That's why um, you're—, you're- Twitter account was Fire Joe Morgan? Yeah, so basically, yeah. So there was a website. So we started a website called Fire Joe Morgan. And the people who wrote for it the most were me, Dave King, and Mike Shore. And again, I had met Mike probably once or twice in my life. I'd probably shaken his hand. But we had this weird thing where almost every day he and I would write crazy 10,000 word long (laughs) 
<laughs> blog posts making fun of baseball writers, which is the most niche thing in the world. And and so at the time, you know, he was on The Office, and I think maybe I'd started on South Park. But but you know, we were maniacs. We would write for it every day for free under pseudonyms for years. And and it, we, we were really crazy. And eventually the blog got a little bit of traction. Like some baseball players read it and people in the game read it. And they, you know, we were in Sports Illustrated and Rolling Stone and all this weird stuff. And so finally, you know, Mike was on The Office at the time. He was working really well with Greg Daniels who created The Office. And so the two of them were going to create a show. And I told my agent, it's like, I kind of know that guy. Like I've been writing a blog with him for a while now she's like what is this like they're no so unbelievably convoluted um so i wrote a pilot and submitted it to that show and mike said hey i like the pilot and also the other good news is i've read literally one million words that you've written over the past three or four years so that was really fortuitous is that website still up it's still up you can go to it it's the worst design it it's firejoemorgan.com and it's Baseball commentary, commentary. So if you're looking for dated sort of criticism of, you know, people commentating on games 10 years ago, I think it's still up there. It's just black text on a white background. Um, but yeah, it, it, it helped me get a meeting. It helped me get a meeting. And, and, and Mike said, hey, Greg still has to read your pilot and, 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 you know, he has to meet with you and stuff. So all that happened. And I ended up getting hired. I was one of the first people hired on that show. It was uh, really early on in the process. It was still technically an office spinoff. This is a 2008? 2007-ish. Yeah, 2007-ish is when I met over there. And I still remember, you know, it was me and uh, Dan Gore and Norm Hiscock. And I think Aziz had been hired as an actor and Rashida had been hired. And I think we still hadn't, you know, hired they hadn't hired Amy Poehler yet. And so we, I remember meeting with them at the, at the Roosevelt hotel and just we're like, they were just kind of swapping ideas about who the lead could be like, yeah, it could be like, you know, Patton Oswalt or, you know, they, there's a bunch of names and stuff. And, and they're like, well, what about Amy Poehler? Like, yeah, it's like, well, she's amazing. Like I can't imagine anyone better. So let's just, and we, we know her. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, once Amy got on board, it became clear that it was not going to be an office spinoff and, and, um, you know, they, they put their heads together and figured that show out and, and, and just such a great, great place to work. I mean, that show and that cast, I mean, has there been anything like it? It's almost like dazed and confused cast for like TV, it's right? It's unbelievable. Every every now and then, you know, I'll see a, a Reddit link about Parks and Rec and I'll click on it. And it's really nostalgic because you look at it and it's just, it's not that long ago, but you can't believe what all of these people have gone on to do. And, and all of them, you know, just almost to a person. Their own show, their own movies, their own they're, – they're just – each and every one of them is so talented and funny. And it was an amazing set to work on and, and an amazing writer's room. You know, the, the writer's room was just as, as harmonious as the set. And if you look at the writers on the show, there's a lot of great writers as well. But I remember on that show, you know, I got to direct a couple episodes. And my biggest problem directing was that the cast liked each other too much. <laughs> they just wanted to hang out and talk. Like if I had a big conference room scene with all 10 actors, they just wanted to shoot the shit and be friends. Like, what a great problem to have. I was like, guys, we can talk. Let's just shoot the scene and then we can all hang out. Like that's that just doesn't happen that much. And 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 uh yeah, it was really really kind of cool. I was I I saw a tweet the other day, I think that Pratt did that was like, hey, what what's the role like you miss? And he's like, well, Andy Dwyer was just the most pure joy. Like it was such great friends and it was seven minutes from my house and and I just got to go and 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 be funny and, and hang out with these people that I like. So you know, it was what a cool great experience. When you were telling me that um when Pratt was getting all these movie roles and then he was doing um, um 
Galaxy was his first big role, right? I think Jurassic World Jurassic- might have been first. Oh, first well, Zero Dark 30 first. Yeah, I that mean. was so it. So Zero Dark 30, he was getting in shape. Yeah. That was when he was getting in shape. And I remember you telling me stories of like, this guy is the nicest fucking guy <laughs> yeah, I've that, ever met in my entire life. The ni- rivaled only by other people in the cast, <laughs> like Offerman or Adam or any of these. Like, they're so nice that like, it was absurd. Like he's, Pratt is one of the most likable people in the world. He's just a super, super likable, real, real guy. And, and um, yeah, we had, we had a lot of good times, man. I had it. I remember when he was getting in shape for for that that movie. We had a, well, I I had a chin up bar in my office because you don't get a lot of exercise as a, as a, as a comedy writer. So I would always walk around the writers' room and there's a chin up bar and I was I would try to do like a hundred a day or whatever. And so Pratt saw it and he was like, oh, he's got to come in and try some. So we used to try to have pull up contests and obviously like you know it's not fair because I'm like a buck forty and he's probably like a jacked two fifty. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it was always fun. We did push ups together and, and stuff like that to try to get into shape. But yeah, it was fun. And then, what were you doing? Were you working on projects in, uh, during the off-seasons of Parks and Rec? Yeah, I would definitely try. I was definitely writing movies and trying to develop and all this stuff. Like, a lot of them, you know, a lot of stuff, I think the ratio, I don't know if people understand this, but the ratio of scripts written to movies made is is enormous. It's like 100 to 1 or something. So, man, I wrote so many bad scripts. <laughs> it was like, yeah, but I was working hard, right? I, I remember... Did, any, did anything, like, see the light of day? I, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I wrote a script, and and, and uh, this, the first script I ever wrote was a script called Gay Dude. And it was based on, again, personal experiences about one of my best friends who came out to me when, when I was, like, 15, 16. And... Um, it was kind of like super, uh, like super bad. But what if like Jonah Hill's character were gay and came out to Michael Sarah? Like that was the kind of premise of the movie, and it was very sort of, you know, early Apatow era where like everyone was like into this sort of fun improvisational style. And and so yeah, I wrote this. Re- it's really dirty and 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 just kind of a f- crazy, you know, premise for a movie in some ways at that time because I remember. Uh, my agent sent it out and it got, it got some good buzz. Like it got me a lot of meetings and it got me other jobs. Um, and, uh, no one wanted to make it. They're like, we, and I think part of it was like, well, first of all, we'll never put out a movie called gay dude. Right. Cause, Cause like what, like in middle America are like, you know, 10 dudes going to be like, Hey, let's go see gay dude. <laughs> you know, let's go well, four for gay dude plays two for gay dude. Like, so, um, so I wrote that script, but you know, what was good about it is it, it got me a lot of other work. It got me other movie jobs, assignments, rewrites and stuff like that. And it was a good sample. And then years later, uh, I got a call. This was, I mean, many years later they're like we're making the movie i was like what i was like lionsgate bought it they're gonna make the movie I was like wow okay <laughs> and so they shot the movie there's a movie called it's a movie they renamed it again because they would never call it gay dude so they called it date and switch and uh the lead one of the funny facts about that movie the female lead in that movie uh is a young dakota johnson who went on to star wow. in 50 shades of gray <laughs> so, that was, so really i take credit for launching her <laughs> um but yeah so nothing that i had like so, sort of complete creative control over but they they shot that script and you would and, ha- yeah. i mean you don't have to name the names but i was always like shocked at how many scripts you were like being sent to make better yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's one that of the That would be seen by a lot of people. Yeah, right? that's one of the weird things where, you know, as a writer, your name isn't on everything. So it get you know, movies get sent to you and you do, you know, you do weekly rewrites on them or um you sometimes go into roundtables and, you know, there's they you know, you go over the script and try to punch it up. But yeah, that's a weird that the, it, the film and TV are kind of the opposite. So in 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 movies, the director has a lot of power and the writers are kind of shuffled in and out. 
And in TV, the writers are the bosses, and you kind of hire directors for each episode. Um, so it's kind of the opposite. So yeah, you can work on, and there's much, much, much more established movie writers than I am who just, that's all they do. They just rewrite movies all the time. And you can make a good living. You can that. make a ton of money. There's there's legendary stories of, you know, multi, multi-millionaire screenwriters who have no produced credits. Like all they do is rewrite, and their name's not on anything, and they have millions of dollars. Um, but I felt like certainly I'm very happy with, what I want to do is just do one thing at a time in terms of movies and like, hey, I'm going to focus on this movie. This is going to be my my whole life for a year and a half, two years, and just make it and 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 put all of myself into it. And, and we got to know each other around 2010, I, and we would have these conversations. And right around then, I, w- I was like, oh, he was like, comedy doesn't age well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we would have this conversation all the time, and I would say, oh, the only thing that ages worse than comedy is food. <laughs> yeah, it ages horribly. Like, look at the food from the 50s. Don't make that. Right. Don't make Not that. 80s, 90s, even <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Yeah. You know? it's it, Think about how dated a 90s restaurant feels. When you go to a restaurant now, it's like, oh, this feels like Spago in the 90s. Like, Spago was amazing in the 90s, but, like, you don't want that now. Right. You know, it's like, that's just crazy. But comedy is the same way. I used to, I've totally outgrown this attitude, but I used to be like, there's no funny movie made before 1990 or something like that. And by the way, that goalpost keeps changing because it's really hard. Not only does comedy not age, it doesn't travel. So, like, you think Asia gives a fuck about Will Ferrell? They don't care. Right. It, it, it just doesn't tra- – because comedy is so specific to a community, to a place and time, and to your identity. It's all of those things. So that's why a comedy is never going to be the highest grossing movie ever made. It's just not. It, it's it's just too specific. It's too personal. It's too cultural? It's too cultural. What Which is people, why explosions sell. Explosions sell. Animation sells. Sex look at, sells. Yeah, sci-fi. Look at the top ten movies of all – it's all it's – all, you you know, computer graphics and, and 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 cool visuals because that stuff is universal. Comedy is like, it depends on who you are, what your background is. Like, do I find this funny? Me and my very good friends find different things funny. Forget about like, you know, uh, a plumber in Ethiopia. Why would he have the same sense of humor as I do? You know, it right. makes no sense. Like, it totally, uh, it totally, it totally makes sense that comedy is trouble. That being said, you know, comedy is very special because. Uh, you know when it works, right? You're in a theater and people are laughing. It's working. It's working. So, so it's. Very, I I think it's very difficult and it doesn't get sort of the respect. You'll never see a comedy win Best Picture. You'll never see a hard comedy win any of those awards. Um, it just doesn't get the respect, which which is a shame. But uh, but I understand it. You know. Um. Then, Parks uh, Parks ends, and then like, this is like so you. You're like, oh yeah. Don't really have a plan. I was like, hey, what are you going to do? What are you guys going to do? He's like, all of a sudden, like a month later, after like the the, the rap party for Parks and Rec, he's like, oh, yeah, we're doing a TV show for Netflix. Yeah, I was like, what like, the fuck? Again, as Dave knows, I'm one of the luckiest I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, what ended up happening was really fun was, uh, you know, when I got hired on Parks and Rec, uh, Aziz was one of the other people who had gotten hired, and a lot of people were like, oh, you're going to be friends with him. Like, you guys have, you guys are about the same age, and I think you'll find the same stuff funny. And I was like, yeah, I'm sure I'll meet a lot of great people on the show. And I did, but I did hit it off with Aziz almost immediately. Like, it was, it was really cool. Like, we, we were, again, we were about the same age. We'd like to go out to eat, and, and then we ended up uh, taking some trips together and traveling with our friends. Um, and so when Parks was winding down, um, you know, we kind of got together and Aziz was like, oh yeah, we should do a show. Just like, let's, let's make a show together and, you know, we'll run it together and I'll be in it and we'll write it. And so, 
that's basically it. And we, what was really, really lucky is we pitched and sold that show to Netflix before the last season of Parks and Rec. So we didn't know that Parks was going to go another season. So we sold it. We were all hyped up to work on it. And then Parks got picked up. So we went back to Parks for another season. And why that was so lucky is we changed what the show is completely. Like we just, we were like, this isn't good enough. Like a classic, you know, Asian kid fashion was like, we need to totally tear this down and make it completely different. Because what we had was sort of a very traditional yeah, it's like he's in New York and he's dating people. You know, it's just it was much more sort of not to use networky as a pejorative, but it was more networky and sort of normal, um, uh, more traditional. And so we, in the interim, because we had that extra year, we just totally changed the show, and and we were like, well, this can this really can can be anything. So so uh, it really, you know, one of the one of the 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 sort of light bulb moments was we were in New York, just kind of walking around, and we were really banging our heads against the wall, and we ended up, you know, going back to the hotel room and and just like uh, you know talking about the show together. And I was like, man, no matter what happens, you know, my dad grew up in a, like a a hut like the size of the corner of this room and now I'm in New York City and we get to make a TV show like you know he used to have to take his pet chicken and kill it for dinner like that's he just didn't even have enough to eat and so and that, you made and now, that you and, made and, the show yeah and then I was like and now we're here making a TV show so this is all gravy and and Aziz's like is that story true I was like yeah as far as I know that's what he told me and so he's like well, that's the show. He's like, forget our stupid lives. Like our <laughs> lives are supremely uninteresting. Like, let's make an episode about that. That's way more interesting than like, oh yeah, I went on a date or whatever. Like, so it was, yeah, it was a really good, uh, a really good idea that 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 uh, um, we could kind of have the show traverse any territory and and span continents and, and generations and all of that. So. And that and. You guys pitched that show on Netflix when there was nothing on Netflix. Yeah, when we pitched it to Netflix, they had two shows, House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. And they had a third show that they licensed, Lilyhammer, about a, <laughs> a, a gangster in Norway <laughs> starring uh, Steven Van Zandt. Well, but, yeah, that was it. It was So that was another really lucky thing is that, that, that you know, it was kind of early for them. And we were one of their first comedies. And, and, and so I think we got a lot, of, a lot of leeway, you know. And that, like, catches us up with, like, your life people there's a lot of information about you and master of none um but these are all things that i thought were super interesting and i uh, i think uh, your life is a can be a template for others to follow uh if if doing shit constantly is a template then yeah, yeah. <laughs> i guess like you know just doing as much stuff as possible i guess well that's it for part 1 of the alan yang podcast we have a lot to cover and tune in for part two of the Dave Chang show with Alan Yang. Thanks so much.